Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models Episode 4. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. Thanks again for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about dominant angles. So... In our earlier episodes, we talked about establishing alignment, uh, basically having solid posture, structure, and base while denying those from your opponents. We also talked about how exactly you do that, which basically comes down to getting a lever and manipulating it on your opponent and then, then using wedges to prevent your opponent from escaping. What we want to talk about today is we want to specifically talk about the importance of angles. So this is something that uh, stand-up fighters often put a lot of thought into or wrestlers put a lot of thought into. And, you know, if, if you've ever done stand-up with someone who's really good at it, you'll know that they spend more than half of the time talking about foot placement and which foot to lead and what to, and what to do if, if the left foot versus the right foot is forward. From my experience, people in jiu-jitsu tend not to think that deeply about dominant angles, which is unfortunate because it turns out to matter a lot. The good thing, though, is that Matt does think about this kind of stuff. So, Matt, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. Um, in jiu-jitsu, when we say dominant angles are important, what are we talking about here? I mean, I think the easiest way to put this would be to uh, envision uh, an opponent who is much bigger and stronger than you. Uh, essentially you don't want this person to be on top of you using their weight and gravity against you. So finding a dominant angle and cre uh, creating that dominant angle by way of a lever generally, and um, sometimes footwork is going to give you, uh, the, give you an edge and give you an angle that you can use to prevent your opponent from crushing you. Or maybe it puts you in a position such as you know, if you, if you get on someone's back, you're going to be in a position where you can attack them, but they can't easily attack you. So, uh, taking the, the rear mount would be a, a great example of this, or, or let's say a crucifix or even a Kimura control from behind, um, is going to be a dominant angle because you are in a position of, of, uh, you know, a strong chance of attack and your opponent doesn't have the resources to attack you. So those are probably the most obvious examples of a dominant angle back mount, for example, you're facing your opponent, you can attack them, they're facing away from you. So their ability to attack you and also to even defend is quite limited. That's probably the most obvious example of a dominant angle, but you're talking about even more subtle things, right? Like, um, you, you know, when, when you're doing stand up or when you, when you're in someone's open guard, just how you adjust your body versus, versus how their body is positioned. Yeah. I mean, if you're in someone's open guard, um, angles are going to be very important because, Anyone who spends a significant amount of time passing guards on their feet, which is now in modern jiu-jitsu pretty much the norm, they're gonna re you're going to realize that the angle of your opponent's hips, uh, it, it's important. And it's important to understand that the, the angle of their hips is going to be following you. If you go left, their hips are going to turn that way and they're going to follow you. If you go to the right, they're going to have to follow you. Otherwise, they're going to get their guard passed. 
So um, finding these dominant angles and, and redirecting your opponent's hips, usually by using their legs as a lever, is going to open up uh, guard passing opportunities and leading you to uh, a stronger position. So generally safe to say that if your opponent cannot look at you or face you, they are very inhibited in their ability to attack or defend. And that basically means you have a dominant angle, correct? Correct. Yeah, there's a few exceptions, but I, but those exceptions are not necessarily high percentage. They're generally things like, oh, I'm on my opponent's back. I've crossed my legs, which some, you know, commonly people say is a no-no, but, you know, we see it at the highest level and it's not a huge deal. And then, and then my opponent who has their back taken wants to try and do some cheesy footlock from there. Uh, these, mm-hmm. these are moves that work on lower level guys and you almost never see them at the highest level. Um, it can happen, but the chances of it happening are way, you know, really low. And if your back is taken, you shouldn't be trying to footlock your opponent. You should be trying to work your way back to a guard. Got it. So tying this back to what we talked about earlier and to alignment, if your opponent cannot face you or they cannot face you directly, then their posture is effectively compromised, right? Even if you're not twisting their spine in some weird way, if your opponent is not able to look at you because of the way that you've positioned yourself versus them, is it fair to say that you've broken their posture? You know, that that's an interesting question. I, I actually don't think that is fair to say because you could be on someone's back and have the rear mount position, but you, you know, it depends how you like to play the rear mount. Like you could be on someone's back with a seatbelt, but you have no idea how to break their alignment and their posture is, is fine. And what this will result in is them escaping very quickly because they're not, uh, you know, they, they don't have a broken posture. If you're, if you're on someone's back and one of the core goals that you have is to, uh, you know, whatever form of control you're going to use, whether it's a direct base control, like a seatbelt or a lever based control, like a Kimura attack, um, if, if you're on someone's back, you want to create wedges around your, your opponent's head. And essentially what that does when you, when you start boxing in your opponent's head, whether it be with your shoulder behind their head or your body's behind their head, or your head is next to their head, driving their face to the side. These are all examples of how you can use parts of your body as wedges, uh, to break your opponent's posture. So, uh, Rob, Rob touches on something very good called, you know, alignment versus position. And this is just a perfect example of that. I could hop on your back and have a seatbelt, but not know how to efficiently apply a seatbelt that breaks your posture. Technically, I am on the back mount, but I won't be there for long because I'm not going to be able to immobilize your escape. If I'm on your back and my goal is breaking your alignment, activating levers, breaking your posture then I'm going to be there for a long time and I will effectively break your posture. So great question. And I recommend, you know, anyone check out Rob's, Rob's online Academy. And he talks a lot about position versus alignment. Got it. So it sounds like posture and dominant angles have a relation, but they're not necessarily the same thing. So in the example that you gave, if you're on somebody's back and you have a seatbelt, you have the dominant angle, but unless you start putting those wedges into place or unless unless you start manipulating levers to actually break their posture, you still don't have, you know, they, they may still have their posture and that gives them the opportunity to escape. Whereas if you have the dominant angle and then you're able to defeat their posture structure and base, not only do you have the dominant angle, but you've denied them the ability to get out of that position as well. That's right. If And, and if I can, essentially a lot of, like one of my favorite ways to do this is like i said to use your own head 
almost like your uh, cheek to cheek with your opponent, which is going to deny your opponent the ability to move their head and, and escape their body to that side. And then from there, you know, your control is going to be very tight and you're going to be there for hopefully quite a long time until you can get the finish. Got it. So I, I guess another similar example would be we're standing up. I go for an arm drag on you, but I make the common mistake of just attempting an arm drag and not securing it. You know, when, when I arm drag you, I don't just want to pull on your arm. I want to get behind you. I want to put my ear to your shoulder. I want to make sure that you can't extract that arm. If I just arm drag and I don't set up those precautions, then I have the dominant angle, but only for a second. I need to start applying wedges on the far side and I need to start attacking your structure or else that dominant angle is going to be taken away very quickly. Yeah, and, and the standing arm drag is a great example. Um, if you arm drag someone from standing, you know, you pull their, their, you pull their arm across the center line and uh, footwork is a big thing here too. So how can, we, how can we actually like get our head behind their shoulder as a wedge? If I arm drag you and my goal is to try and run to the back, we're going to end up in like a dosi do type position where we're chasing each other. Mm-hmm. And this is not really what I want. So if I drag your arm across the, ch- the center line, I use my footwork to actually cut you off in the direction that I'm that I'm dragging you. This is going to close the distance. And generally, I'm able to either, you know, finish a strong takedown from this position or I can get to the back and secure my head position behind your shoulder, uh, effectively gluing me to the back. And then from there, I'm going to continue to work towards having a lever-based control, like a Kimura control or a motorcycle grip, and looking for hooks. So how exactly do you think about this? You know, when I when I train stand-up, the thing that I find often a little bit intimidating is it just seems like there's so much stuff you have to worry about. You know, where your opponent's feet are and which foot he's leading with and which foot you're leading with and where your opponent is putting his or her weight. It sounds like you think of this more holistically and in terms of alignment. Do you have any best practices or tips or just ideas for how to more quickly understand how to get that dominant angle when you're standing up with someone? Yeah, you know, um, I, I've been really fortunate to work with some some pretty good judo guys. And, of course, my uh, my one of my coaches, Professor Mike Lee, is a really awesome judo black belt. He taught me a lot about uh, takedowns, even though I, my game is, I'm mainly a guard puller <laughs> unapologetically, but I do have those tools in my, in my game. If I need it, um, I recommend that if you want to get good at takedowns or at least comfortable standing, you've, you've got to essentially practice those arts. So, you know, if, if you're going to go into a session and you want to work your takedowns, but you're using your jujitsu goggles by that, I mean, like, you know, you're going to pull guard if you feel uncomfortable, you're going to not progress in those in those uh, areas of the game. Whereas if you go in saying, okay, I'm just going to work my takedowns. I don't even care about submissions. I'm just going to work on getting a takedown. Uh, or a same thing with judo. If I go into judo and I'm looking to pull guard, I'm not really practicing my judo. So isolating those those individual grappling arts can really help you accelerate your game. And you also want to find a technique or two that you really like. Usually, you know, in judo, you want to have a forward throw, a backward throw, uh, and you don't need a ton of throws. You don't need a hundred moves. You just need, uh, first of all, you need someone who's proficient at teaching these techniques to you and is good at takedowns. And then second of all, you need to be able to isolate these takedowns in your training and not focus so much about, you know, jujitsu, uh, as a whole, because that's going to take away from your takedown training. Got it. Yeah. And and that makes sense. I mean, one of the things that I realized is that the takedown game is fundamentally 
very different from the ground game. There, there are, of course, a lot of similarities. Alignment applies in all cases, but stand-up has a level of fluidity and weight placement that you don't necessarily have to worry about when you're on the ground. You know, when, when you're on the floor, regardless of whether you're on the top or the bottom, there's a degree of connection to your opponent and to the floor that makes things a little bit more predictable. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just me being biased, having spent so much time training on the floor versus stand-up, but it sure feels that way to me. Let's yeah. talk about when you're on the ground. What are some examples of dominant angles when you're on the ground? How do, how do they differ from stand-up? And maybe provide some examples of what it means when you're doing groundwork. Yeah, I mean, so you could use the exact same example that we just used, an arm drag. Like, arm drag from Butterfly Guard, the seated guard, is one of my favorite techniques. Um, getting that arm drag, you, you can do so many things with it. But essentially what you're doing is you're creating... Uh, a predictable reaction from your opponent. So whether I arm drag you and you bail and I get on top with a sweep, or maybe I arm drag you and I happen to get the angle to get your back, I'm I'm using that arm drag to create a uh, a predictable reaction which I act upon by by arm dragging your arm across your body. I break your your structure, and commonly what I'll do is I'll supercharge the arm drag by kicking out the opposite leg. So if, I, if I'm in front of you and I'm going to drag your right arm, I'm going to kick out your left knee. If I do this simultaneously, not only do I break your structure by dragging the arm, but I break your base by kicking your knee out. And what, what the result is, is you almost go flat as a pancake, which allows me an even bigger pocket of time to move towards the back and essentially an effect, a more effective arm drag. So didn't Rob Bernacki do a video on this? Probably, probably. I mean, Rob Bernanke's got some awesome stuff out there. It's, it's a, it's a technique that I, I've always used, uh, ever since I started studying Marcelo Garcia back in, uh, as a blue belt. And I still use it today, almost every time. Um, and, and basically when I see someone approaching my, my closed, uh, or sorry, my, my seated guard, if, if I see their elbows away from their body, as if they're reaching, I know I'm going to get that arm drag. It's the same thing if I'm fighting someone, and I decide I want to go for a takedown and I see their arms are really reaching for me, trying to collar tie me and really, you know, their arms are extended away from their body. Every time you do that, you expose your own alignment, right? And you have to do that when you're going to be a successful wrestler, but you do want to be somewhat conservative and you want to be careful with how your elbows leave your body because you're leaving yourself open. Um, another example would be if I'm in the bottom half guard, I want to get a better angle. I could shoot, shoot up and come up with an underhook. And an underhook in the half guard is a, that's essentially one of the main battles that happens between two fighters in the half guard, you know, fighting for the underhook. And if, if I can get a nice underhook and start building base onto my other elbow, I'm going to create a situation where I'm essentially setting up a, a dog fight position, allowing sweeps in many directions. So, uh, you know, getting an underhook, exposing a lever and starting to work towards the back or working towards a sweep. There's another example. Interestingly, this ties into what we talked about last episode, where we talked about the model of limb coiling and how you never want to expose your arms or legs by sticking them out unless you have a good reason to do so and you know that your opponent cannot counter them. You know, the example that you just described is if Uki is leaving his arm extended you know you can get the arm drag. And so if you're the guy who is uh, on the other end of the equation, it's in your best interests not to do that. You want to keep your elbows in tight unless you have a good reason to extend and you know that your opponent cannot take advantage of that situation. So you brought up something interesting, and I'm wondering if this is uh, kind of universal. You talked about 
the arm drag from guard. So let's say that I'm on the bottom. I, I try to arm drag you. You talked about how it's often rather than just trying to arm drag, you also kick out the far leg. And I'm guessing that if we're going to tie this back to the discussion about alignment, you know, you're, if I were to just pull your arm, I'm basically attacking your structure. But by kicking out your leg, I'm attacking two levers instead of one. And because I'm taking out your leg, I'm also attacking your base as well, right? So that, is that the reason why you're doing that? I'm assuming that's part of why you get extra power when you take that approach. Exactly. Yeah. So, so remember the score game that we discussed in the previous episode. Uh, we each have posture structure base when we start out with, you know, assuming that our our stance is good and our, our fundamental base is, is sound. Right. If 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 you don't know how, how your stance should be, you're very new. Well, then, you know, you might not have those those uh, you might not have posture structure base and you don't even know it. But let's assume that you're a good grappler and you do have those three things. By dragging the arm while simultaneously kicking out the leg, you do take the score down to three to one for that second. And that is the opportunity that you create to now go for your attack. So I want to attack someone where I've taken away at least two, if not three of those things before I mount my attack. And that's going to leave me with a higher percentage than if I just attack someone who's in full alignment. So the reason this works here is because instead of just attacking one lever, (coughs) so instead of just attacking one lever by arm dragging, you're attacking one lever, the, the arm drag, and then you're attacking another lever, a lever on the opposite side of your opponent's body, which is the leg. And by doing that, it's kind of like taking two legs off of a stool, right? You know, you, That's right. You, um, so it, and you, ta- you use the word supercharge, and I think this is a great way to describe what you did here. Is this a general principle of something you should always try to do? Like whenever you're manipulating a lever, is it a good idea to try to take out a secondary lever on the other side to weaken base if possible? You know, if possible, uh, yes. Um, and and that's and sometimes it's not even going to be a lever as in uh, a leg and an arm or whatever, but, but sometimes it could easily be like uh, someone's head and an arm. So, for example, a collar tie is a prime example of this. You know, if you're going to do a standing ankle pick and you're in the collar tie, um, generally it only works if you snap your opponent's head down and bring that head towards the foot that you're going to ankle pick, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of the time I think of the head as a lever as well, but... um, I always think of it as a lever. Exactly. I think of it as a lever to your spine, right? Uh, And the lever to your posture. So, for sure, in many times I want to be attacking multiple levers if possible. If I'm not going to attack multiple levers on your body... uh, Effectively, I'm going to be looking for uh, a two-on-one, most likely. So both of my hands are going to be um, dedicated to the control of one of your levers. Got it. So it's not necessarily a principle that applies in all cases, but generally speaking, when you know you want to make sure that when you are attacking a lever, you supercharge that attack. And it sounds like there's a few different ways to do that depending on context. Yeah. Um, one way is, you know, in some cases, like with the arm drag, it makes sense to knock out your opponent's opposite side leg. In other cases, it may make sense to use a two-on-one. But in any case, it all comes back to that alignment scorecard, right? You don't just want to compromise their structure when you manipulate a lever. You always want your this this attempt to manipulate a lever to also attack their their posture and their base if possible. Always, yeah. And 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 when I um, started training under Rob, I stopped thinking about my my favorite moves. I stopped thinking about sweeps and submissions. I thought more about how do I break alignment? Uh, how do I how do I win the lever battle? 
you know, you, you can take these simple, vague concepts and apply them to any situation. So it really simplified uh, my goals as a grappler when I was in a fight. It wouldn't be so much like, okay, I like the arm bar. It's one of my favorite moves. How do I get to the arm bar, right? Because, because you're thinking of something that you're basically funneling everything you do towards that goal. And then a lot of the time, the opportunity never arises because you have to live in the moment and just fight for levers as, as things unfold. So it's more about how can you win the lever battle? How can you affect your opponent's posture structure base while maintaining your own posture structure base? Got it. On this note, we've talked about exploiting the dominant angles of your opponent, but the flip side of this is preventing your opponent from getting dominant angles on you. Mm-hmm. And also, to some extent, um, reducing your opponent's options. So you see this a lot, particularly when you're standing up. You know, you, you're you always told that you never want to stand with both of your feet forward in front of the guy. You always want to adopt a staggered stance with one foot forward, one foot back. This is universal in most martial arts. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for why this is suggested, uh, some of them involving being able to load up and, and generate force. But one of the reasons is because it reduces the surface area of your opponent or of your body that your opponent can attack. So if you've only got one foot forward and one arm forward, then you know which arm or which foot your opponent is going to attack because they can't get at your back one. That's so right. I, when we talk about dominant angles, I see this game as of, of minimizing the surface area of your body as the flip side of this. Like, how do you defend dominant angles being exploited by your opponent? You want to minimize the amount of your body that they can gain access to. Because if your opponent can't grab you, then they aren't able to exploit that part of your body and gain a lever. It's, it's an awesome point. Like, not only do, if, if I have, I like to sound with my left leg forward. Uh, I like to shoot on my left knee if I do decide to shoot. It's a great example. Like I hide my right leg and that's what Steve's getting at here. And not only do I hide my right leg, but having the staggered stance allows me to absorb force if I happen to get pushed back or even if I'm pulled forward. Right. Uh, and keeping your feet moving and understanding where to put your feet and how it's just like if you were to learn striking, you always want to have your feet in the correct place so that your weight can be distributed in the proper way. Um, I, I did a little bit of striking classes with Dan Kajic, who's who's a, a really awesome uh, kickboxer and uh, a current MMA fighter in Battlefield. He just, just came off a TKO victory. I'm really happy for you, so congrats, Dan. But this guy showed me in just a few quick lessons for striking, and I'm no striker, but it's, it's not even about, like, uh, when you're learning striking, it's not so much about how you're going to throw combos and how you're going to generate power. It's more about... How do you not feel off balance when you're doing these things? And that involves knowing where your feet and where your weight needs to be. So it's the exact same thing for for wrestling. If you think about it, you always want to know where your feet are. You know, you don't want to do silly things like crossing your feet. You always want to have your base nice and wide. And then that's going to give you the best chances of denying your opponent the ability to break your alignment, to snap you down, to, you know, to pull your arms across the center line. And of course, we've talked now we're talking about footwork. If you think about the position of your arms, always try and keep those arms tucked in uh, unless you're, you know, there's a goal in mind why you would reach and grab your opponent's head. Because if you just, if you live in the collar tie, if you like love hanging on the collar tie against someone good who knows how to expose you, you're giving them levers to be, to move them, to move you around with. Yeah. An example that's very fundamental in jujitsu is when you're in someone's closed guard 
you want to posture up, right? You want to have your, your head up. And, and you want that for a few reasons. One reason, of course, is because it strengthens your spine, which makes it harder for your opponent to pull you back down. But another reason is it establishes a dominant angle, right? If I have strong posture and my head is up, my opponent cannot grab my head. I've created a dominant angle by taking my head out of the equation. Mm -hmm. So now my opponent is stuck hand fighting with me, and that's an advantage to me, right? It, there are ways to play close guard with your head down, but it, it's almost a different game. You know, you need to when your when your head is down, you have to be careful because you're giving your opponent the opportunity to use your head as a lever. So that's a big right. a big part of dominant angles is not just getting that dominant angle on your opponent, but it's also minimizing the parts of your body that are exposed to your opponent so that they cannot get a dominant angle on you. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Um, any other examples or, or points you want to talk about on that note, Matt, when it comes to dominant angles? Generally, just whether you're standing or whether you're on the ground playing guard, just think about using levers to get a dominant angle. I know that's like super vague, right? We, we could We could talk about every single position that you're going to get into, right? And we'd be here all day. It's all about denying your opponent the control of your levers while you while you access the control of their levers. And that's really all it is. Uh, right. If I can pull your arm across the center line, I'm going to have a, a... You're basically on the defense now until you get that sorted out. It would be the same thing as if, uh, you know, if I get my dominant grips and you don't have grips and now you're trying to pass my guard while I have grips there's an order of operations to things. So keeping your arms tight to your body, keeping your feet uh, in proper base if you're standing and always, you know, just keeping your levers in check is going to lead to good things. You know, you mentioned something there about crossing the center, which is a mental model in and of itself. Um, one of the ways that you can break someone's posture and structure very quickly is by taking a limb and putting it across their center line, right? If, you know, you're, you're always told when you're, when you're playing guard, you know, you, you never want to put your own arm across your center line, across your spine. And the reason why is because it effectively kills your ability to use that arm. And it also, to some extent, forces you to turn away in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So if, when it comes to creating and exploiting dominant angles, one of the easiest ways to do that, if you can ever get one of your opponent's limbs and get it across their center line, meaning where their spine is, it almost always means you're going to get a dominant angle. So if you, I mean, if you can arm drag a guy, that's great. But if you can arm drag him and get his arm right across his own center line, it's going to be real bad for him. Yeah. And the same thing applies with legs. So a leg drag is it literally encompasses the exact same thing that you just said. Yeah. If I pull someone's leg across their bot, uh, across their center line, it's going to turn their hips away uh, from me, from the, force vector i'm coming down on them i'm turning their hips away and now they basically have to uh move their hips in such a way and maintain base so that they can provide a defense for me or else they're going to end up with their spine facing one way and their hips facing the other way which is of course broken posture yeah the leg the leg drag is a great example of um, it's crossing the center, right? When you cross your opponent's leg over their own center line like that, it immediately breaks their structure and their posture. Makes it really, really hard to get out of, which is one of the reasons why um, the leg drag as well as the arm drag are so foundational and so important, right? It's one of the easiest ways to disable large parts of your opponent's body with a very, very simple movement. Of course. Oh yeah, and I should also mention Crab ride, fantastic way to get a dominant angle. Where would I go if I wanted to learn how to crab ride, man? <laughs> well, you should ask. No. Uh, shameless plug, check out my DVD, Baron Bolo and Crab Rides. It's coming out uh, with uh, featuring Rob Bernacki and Stefan Casting of Grapple Arts. 
Uh, it's my first DVD project. I'm really excited about it, and it's going to be awesome. So definitely check that out if you want to learn some inverted jiu-jitsu. So, and actually, one of the things about um, inversion that is useful is it allows you to reposition and re-angle your body in very unique ways. Um, the problem a lot of the time is, you know, once you get into a position like a leg drag, it can be really hard to reestablish your posture and your structure by turning back towards and facing your opponent. Sometimes the easier way is to go with the motion and to invert and to roll. And that's where this kind of stuff becomes important, right? Because it gives you more options and more ability to, to recover when your opponent crosses your center line. That's right. And, you know, if, if you if you really like taking the back or maybe you want to take the back, but you're missing uh, certain things from your game or you feel like there's opportunities to take the back, but you just, you know, you, you can't figure out how to make those those opportunities click. I guarantee that this this instructional can help you because there's a big portion on it and taking the back and once i really started diving into the crab ride stuff and the truck and the, the barambolo my back takes became very dynamic in a lot higher percentage just because i had a lot more answers in these strange inverted positions so um, definitely check that out and i guarantee your back takes will improve <laughs> so one other very specific type of dominant angle I want to talk about is um, it doesn't really have an official name as far as I know, but I've heard it described by different people as either inside position or inside control. Um, I personally like to call it the inside channel, but basically I'm referring to when, you know, you're, when you're sparring with your opponent, it is often advantageous to have your arms, legs, and even your head on the inside. Um, so uh, the perfect example of how to visualize this is if I'm playing butterfly guard and you're coming at me, I want to have my legs on the inside. I don't want your legs to be on the inside. I want to have both of my arms on the inside and I even want to have my head on the inside. So anyone who has experience playing butterfly guard knows that if I'm playing butterfly guard and you are able to get your head below mine, I'm probably going to lose the position right away. You're going to get pinned flat to your back, losing all of the all the advantages that you get from the seated butterfly guard. If your opponent can flatten you, put their head under your head and, and essentially give you the Pez dispenser, they're going to take away all ability to elevate your opponent and get underneath your opponent. Yeah. Um, it's a great, it's like, th this is a really important thing to talk about, Steve. Uh, and we were discussing like, well, what, what would be like a common theme within uh, inside pummeling or inside channel or whatever you want to call it uh, that would apply to all situations. And the main situations we were talking about were, you know, uh, butterfly guard being a great example, um, standing and wrestling, like, you know, the basic arm pummeling, pummeling for underhooks, and also for leg pummeling. So an example of leg locks, um, what would be a common theme for these things? And essentially, the common theme is, I want to deny you the ability to access my levers. I want to deny you lever control while I maintain lever control. And uh, what we what we found out is it, it, it applies for everything. If I have underhooks, you know, I'm going to have uh, control of your torso, but I'm also going to be able to exploit your levers with these underhooks. If I have a butterfly hook, I'm uh, butterfly hooks. I'm going to be able to elevate you with these hooks into certain positions and sweeps. And if we're double seated position and we're leg pummeling, if I can always have my feet on the inside, not only will I hide my feet from attack, but I will expose your feet. I will be able to get to my ashigurami or I will be able to come up and, and technical stand uh, for my sweep. So the common theme between the, for the leg pummeling is always winning the lever battles mm -hmm. and uh, essentially uh, affecting your opponent's structure and base 
uh, and even posture if you grab their head through pummeling. Got it. So part of the reason why the inside channel is effective, I suppose, why having that helps win the lever battle is because if my arms, legs, and or head are on the inside, it's easier for me to get your arms or legs or head, and it's harder for you to grab mine, right? Like the, the reason why this is effective is because it gives me an advantage in controlling your levers, and it makes it hard for you to grab mine. And this kind of ties into what we talked about on the last episode, where we talked about how if you keep your your head and your your arm and your leg, your arms and your legs small and tight towards your body, it's hard for your opponent to exploit them, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And and for anyone who is um, experienced in leg locking, you know that this is one of the first thing you learn. First things you learn is the leg pummeling game. Uh, it's one of the most fundamental drills you can do. And I'm shocked how many people come visit me and they don't know uh, this basic concept of hiding your feet on the inside, always pummeling your legs on the inside. Um, it can really give you a, a, a piece of of of, uh, of the leg locking game for beginners, that is like really foundational. So definitely start leg pummeling. And, um, you know, you're going to not only are you going to be able to enter into different positions eventually, but you're going to deny your opponent a lot of the ability to grab control of both levers to your hip and make a technical stand. Yeah. And never underestimate the power of that inside channel control. I mean, I was sparring with a much smaller guy the other the other day and I he was playing butterfly and I, I flattened him out but he still had both butterfly hooks. But I thought, big deal. You know, I, I've, I basically, I'm sitting on this guy. He's got two butterfly hooks, but I'm sure I can pass and I can, I can be safe here. Turns out that's not the case. He, that inside channel control was powerful enough that he was able to off balance me and leg lock me from there. Um, you know, I thought I had him flattened out. And, and this is similar to when we talked about in the last episode, how um, there's an order of operations. And if your opponent has solid grip control on you, you don't want to try to pass or advance position until you deal with the grip control. I would argue that if they have the inside channel, it's similar. You know, even if your opponent has inside channel control on you, so they've got like butterfly hooks or whatever, you probably don't want to attempt to pass until you've neutralized those because you might find yourself in a very bad position. Those That inside channel control can be deceptively strong. So you need to understand that that can really, really result in a game change of position if you're not paying attention. That's right. And, and anyone who's been following uh, Gordon Ryan lately, he's about to put on a, D- a DVD on float passing. And one of the big things in float passing it, that's involved is the leg pummeling battle. So if I'm elevated into a position where I'm riding my opponent's butterfly hooks, it's going to be very easy for them to now shoot a leg through and, and get a control of my leg if I don't know what I'm doing. But if I can pummel my legs on top, I essentially out pummel my opponent And now I'm the one who's dictating the lever fight. So this is really important when we're trying to avoid getting leg locked and we're trying to be successful with our guard passing. Uh, Just like if I'm on the bottom and we're, you know, we're in a sweeping battle and we're both, let's say we're both on our sides and it's one of those situations where who's going to come up first. Uh, Generally, I try and pummel my leg underneath my opponent's leg. And what that does is it denies when I have the, when I have the, uh, the pummel in that situation, it denies my my opponent the ability to put that foot into base. So when I dig away their base in that situation, I usually am going to be the first one coming up. Got it. Got it. So any other comments, by the way, Matt, on, on dominant angles? Any other thoughts to share? Yeah, you know, j- j- maybe just one more example would be like, let's say uh, if, if I'm in like an open Delahiva guard, right? Uh, if, if, an, if an opponent is facing me head on, 
Delaheva guard is not really my friend, but if I can now stretch out their far leg and create almost like a 90 degree angle, mm-hmm. uh, a prime example of when a dominant angle is uh, advantageous because now I have options if I want to go upside down uh, into Barambolo or if I want to uh, just manage the distance better and keep a stronger Delaheva hook. Uh, achieving that angle will make that guard much more effective and will help me keep uh, in much better alignment. Yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, something I I remember was a game changer for me. I used to find it really, really hard to submit guys from closed guard. And I realized that regardless of what submission you're attacking from closed guard, you want you probably want to try to turn 90 degrees before you finish, right? Um, if, for example, if you try to armbar someone straight on, probably not going to work. You need to cut a corner. You need to go 90 degrees. Now, to some extent, that's a bit obvious with an armbar, but what people often don't realize is even with a triangle choke or even with a collar choke. Or Kimura. Yeah, even. yeah. If you if you can turn your body 90 degrees to your opponent and establish that dominant angle, it's a lot easier to finish. Like, if you're having a problem, especially as a smaller person where people are lifting you or they're powering out of your triangle, um, man, cutting that corner and, and attacking them from a 90 degree angle makes things a lot easier. Yeah. Now, now, granted, the triangle is a hard move to finish on bigger guys. I, I could probably do a whole episode just about pointers for finishing the triangle, but a lot of it comes down to that dominant angle. Yes, yeah, such a good, such a good example. I didn't even think about that from the closed guard. Like, of course, to have an effective closed guard, uh, offensive closed guard, you have to have hip movement mm-hmm. and create these dominant angles. So, if you're just go, if you're wondering why your closed guard isn't Whoops. If, you're, if you're wondering why your closed guard isn't um, effective and you can't seem to, to gain any, any, any ground with your progression, you have to obviously, uh, maybe it's not so obvious, you have to create these angles so that you can get more efficient attacks. It's a great point. Yeah, the, the part of the problem is when you look at pictures of closed guard, you know, all of the pictures you see are the guy in the bottom directly facing and looking right up at the guy at the top. But if you want to be effective at the closed guard, you're better off trying to get beside them. You know, you don't want to necessarily be looking right at them. You want to be in a position where you're 90 degrees to the side because if they can't look right at you, it makes it, first of all, it makes it a lot harder for them to establish their posture, but it also makes it a lot easier for you to attack sweep and submit. Cool. So just to recap the mental models that we talked about today, the the big one, dominant angles. Uh, When you are fighting someone, it is always advantageous to try to establish an angle where they are not able to directly face you and use all of their weapons toward you. How do you do that? Easiest way is through lever control. That's the way that you're mostly going to establish dominant angles. Another mental model that we talked about, minimizing attack vectors. So when you are sparring with somebody, you want to position your opponent in such a way that they cannot get dominant angles on you. That can mean adopting a staggered stance if you're standing up. It can mean having strong posture when you're in the guard so they can't grab your neck. But in general, you want to position your body in such a way that your opponent has fewer places where they can attack you. Another mental model we talked about was crossing the center. So when you are trying to establish dominant angles, it is always advantageous to take your opponent's limb and move it across their center line. That almost immediately breaks their posture and their structure. The best examples of that are probably arm drags and leg drags. And finally, uh, the last mental model we talked about today was inside position. So the idea being that much like with butterfly guard, if you can get your arms and your legs and even your head on the inside and not allow your opponent to do the same to you, you're much more likely to be able to establish lever control over them than they are of you. 
And some good examples of that are, are, as I mentioned earlier, butterfly guard, but also things like pummeling for underhooks are a good example of establishing control of that inside channel position. Yep. Great. Cool. So I guess it's time for some Q&A then. Uh, thanks again to everyone for submitting your awesome questions. We've we see, received some really, really good and thoughtful questions. If we haven't talked about your question yet, that doesn't mean we haven't seen it. Um, actually, some of the questions that came in were things that we were thinking about talking about in future episodes. And, and some of them were actually so deep and involved that we were thinking of maybe doing entire episodes based around a single question. So please do understand that we have seen your questions and please do continue to submit those questions to us. They're very much a, a core part of the show and they allow us to identify what kind of content we can add to make this more useful to the people listening. Yeah, keep them coming, guys. Yep. So, so one of the first questions that we received today, and this this is a good one: What kind of mental models did we use to develop ourselves and our game, especially when we were unable to be on the mats directly? So, the way that I interpret this question, Matt, is: What are kind of the mental models we use to accelerate our learning, especially in situations where, for whatever reason, whether it be injury or lifestyle changes or just unavailability, we couldn't train to the extent that we wanted to. Yeah, I'm 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 pretty fortunate that uh once I started doing jujitsu, about a few months in I realized, hey, this is something I want to do every day. And I was actually getting I was feeling guilt pains if I if I couldn't make class. So, uh you know, I was never I never was driven by world championships or even having my own school. I just I wanted to be there. I wanted to improve. I felt that I was decent at it. So it was something that I wanted to nurture. Um, And pretty fortunately, I only got injured a few times where I had to take an extensive amount of time off. So I've I've been lucky enough to be able to have enough time on the mats that uh, I haven't had to visualize off the mats necessarily. But um, just just that itself uh, is one one mental model would be visualization. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even though you're not on the mats making the motions happen and moving your body and getting a workout, you can still totally benefit and train your mind because jujitsu is such a mental sport, right? Um, so for example, visual, one example I love to use is judo, right? Like I, I, I really struggled hard with judo for the first few years. And like, I mean, really hard. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even do a Sayanagi slowly on it, on someone not, not, uh, not resisting, right? I'm, I was used to doing jujitsu where things are broken down in steps, slowly, you know, sequential. In judo, it was a big change in gears because everything is now explosive. They, you know, my, my judo, my first judo coach, Kevin Thornlow, just used to say, don't even think, just throw. Like he was becoming frustrated with me. Like you're thinking too much. You're thinking about steps too much. You know, it's funny. Just throw. It's you know? so funny you mentioned that because my first judo coach, and, and granted, I did not train judo nearly as much as you, but he said the exact same thing. He basically, at some point, he basically said, look, you're, you're thinking too much about this. And um, this is actually something that I want to talk about a lot more. So I, up to this point, we started the show by talking about the mostly the mechanical mental models of jiu-jitsu, meaning how the body operates, the biology and the physics behind jiu-jitsu. But a far, far bigger area of study is how the mind operates, both strategically and psychologically. And on our website, we've documented a ton of mental models about the psychological and strategic aspects of jiu-jitsu. 
most of the future shows that we do are probably going to center around those discussions because there's only so much you can talk about physiologically. Um, the thing that is actually really interesting about jujitsu is how you engage the mind. Um, so yeah, Matt, Matt, to your point, this is something that I have also been guilty of, which is kind of overthinking, right? Like I, I tend to be very, very analytical and it is possible to think too much about something when you should just start doing it. Exactly. And, and when I, when it came time for me to actually execute a throw in training on someone who's not even resisting, right? This is like, we're doing Uchikomi, like we're practicing the throw. I couldn't even do it. I couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, sometimes you hear like, like Matt Hughes, for example, he said, he always said that, you know, he's excellent wrestler, but he couldn't do boxing combinations if his life depended on it. Right. His mind was so ingrained in wrestling that it was, it was so difficult to switch gears and now add striking into his game. I found that this was a similar effect for me. So what I ended up doing was uh, when I would be working my job back when I was still a chef, I would be at work doing my job, running through the motions, but my mind was thinking about these throws. I was going through the throw over and over and over in my mind. And I would ever, every once in a while, I'd come across these aha moments where I'd be like, oh, like that's, that's what I'm missing. You know, that's what I need to do to make the throw happen. Even though I'm not physically executing the throw, uh, I'm mentally drilling and visualizing in my head what I could do to be better. So definitely vi- when I say visualizing, I just mean, you know, you're imagining a scenario that's happening and you just repeat it in your head over and over. Ask yourself, what, what do I, what is my goal? What do mm-hmm. I want my partner not to do to me? What are things that can go wrong, right? What, what are going to, what's, what are going to be some, uh, some backup plans when things do go wrong? I also, once I started working with Rob, I started working, I started using the posture structure base concept as a filter. And if I was having issues with a certain move, I would run through in my mind, I would take the scenario and I'd run it through my mind and say, okay, well, where's my base? Where's my posture? Where's my structure? A, a lot of the time I was able to actually figure out things that I was doing wrong using posture structure base, the alignment concept as a, a, a filter for these certain scenarios. And it really helps me figure out what I'm doing wrong and what I need to do right and what I need to do to my opponent to make it so that they can't counter me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, when, when it comes to thinking about jujitsu, I I think that having a very analytical mind when it comes to jujitsu and thinking about it at a high level can in a lot of ways really accelerate the speed of your learning more so even than actual time spent on the mats what you've described as visualization i've always called it meditative drilling but basically it means visualization and we're talking about basically trying to trying to in your mind um, recall and and master and refine concepts when you're not on the mats I want to have entire future episodes about how to learn. I think that the art of learning is actually something that merits further conversation. We could have multiple conversations about that. And a great book. <laughs> yeah, by, by the way, if you haven't read it, um, and, and this will be the topic of a lot of the things I think we likely talk about, uh, The Art of Learning by Josh Waitskin. It's on Audible. It's on Amazon. He is actually a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt under Marcelo Garcia. Highly recommend that book. Um, but the... When it comes to learning, there's there's a lot of, of things specifically I want to talk about there. I would say, though, that um, one thing that is so critical when it comes to learning is consistency. And I don't necessarily mean consistency on the mats. Like, it, it would be great if everyone could spend two hours a day training every single day. But at the bare minimum... On the days where you're not training, you should really try to make sure that you do one thing related to your jiu-jitsu game every single day to improve your game. So even if you can only train twice a week, you you should make sure 
that on the remaining five days, you're at least doing something to advance your game. That could be watching a YouTube video. It could be um, taking or reviewing notes. It could even be just sitting down and just thinking, um, you know, about jujitsu, thinking about and mentally recalling what's worked for you and what hasn't, doing some silent reflection. The, but the idea is you want to keep jujitsu permanently in your mind. Jujitsu should always have a residency in your brain. And if it is always there in your mind, then it allows your subconscious to kind of ruminate and think about these things while you're focused on other stuff. And I find personally, that's where a lot of the aha moments come from. Whereas if you just completely forget about jujitsu, like if you, you know, if you get an injury and you say, oh, well, I guess I'm not doing jujitsu for two months and you don't even like think about jujitsu at all, when you come back, you're going to have lost a lot. But if you have actively left some headspace for jujitsu the whole way through, you can still advance and improve your game, even if your time on the mats is quite minimal. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, is, is this is chess, not checkers. So when you're not on the mats, uh, is a great point, Steve, is just keeping your mind just in jujitsu. Uh, this, this is a sport that takes time and it takes, takes a lot of thought. It's not a sport where uh, mat time accrued necessarily means gain. A lot of the time you might not be learning the right things. You might have training partners that create false positives because maybe they, maybe they don't know uh, the most efficient ways to do things. Maybe your instructor doesn't know. It's important to keep your research going and, and to really just to always think about jujitsu. And uh, if, if we're talking about thinking about jujitsu, we should, I mean, I should discuss just always thinking about what you're doing wrong. Like, uh, mm -hmm. the, like in terms of the scientific method, I always try and one thing, one thing I love about, uh, training under Rob is he's always trying to, you know, I'll come to him with something. I'll be like, Hey, this is a really cool entry or this is a really cool, uh, different mechanic I found on a heel hook instantly. What this bastard does is start breaking. It. <laughs> he starts taking it apart and telling me exactly why he's going to defeat it or what could go wrong. And this is why I'm under Rob is because the scientific approach where he's trying to not only find something where he can replicate it and, uh, you know, we, we, we can, we can find a strong result that is, uh, we can replicate, but we also immediately trying to break it. We try and break down how we can take it apart. How, what is good about it? What is wrong? What can go, what can go right? You know, what, what might, what are, and then, then you can really start coming up with some predictable defenses from our opponents. This is how you become super intimate with certain techniques and concepts. So, um, being critical of yourself, you know, when you're not on the mats, one of the things I, one of the things I do when I'm not training is I'm always thinking, you know, mm -hmm. I'll be like, what is wrong with what I'm doing? Like not what I did right, but what, what could go wrong with what I'm doing and being more critical about our own games, um, is going to lead us to a stronger, higher standard of jujitsu. Yeah. You should always try to be humble in your game and look for things that don't work versus things that do. Like it, it's very, very tempting to kind of let your ego do the thinking for you and to get really excited when you find something that works and to focus just on that. But it leads you down a much narrower path. It's more useful to identify the things in your game that don't work. Um, I've always found personally that I learn a lot more when I get submitted or beat up than when I, I win, right? Like if, sure. I, if I just like, you know, just like run a clinic on a guy, I don't get anything out of it. But if I'm sparring with someone and they do something to me and they tap me or they, they shut me down in a way I've never seen before, those are the things that like I'll still remember a year later, you know, and it really encourages you to reflect and think on your game. And that's why it's so important to seek out people 
who are really going to challenge you. You know, it's, it's so tempting to, you know, when you're in class, you see like the, you know, some giant black belt who looks like he could just beat the hell out of everyone and probably can. And you think, man, I don't want to roll with that guy. It's so tempting to take that mentality, but you're much better off going in against that person and looking like a fool for five minutes and getting some real life applicable knowledge that you can use to improve your game versus staying in your comfort zone and training with people that you know you can beat. I think that's a big problem that people in jujitsu have. Uh, and I, again, I, I actually want to do a whole episode on this topic and on the psychology of learning because that's something a mistake that a lot of people make. And I think, you know, even not even speaking about jujitsu, something we can do better as, as human beings is questioning what we're doing, especially if we're doing things well. That's awesome. We're doing things well. We're moving ahead in whatever we're, you know, whatever field we're progressing in. But being more critical of yourself and how you can do things better and, and how you can, you know, uh, just 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 thinking just that, like, what are some of the things that I think I could always improve upon? Even if I'm like, I got the best leg lock entry into a 411 or something. I'm still not satisfied with it. I'm, I still always want to find a way that I can break it down or make it better. And having that open mind and that flexible mind, that's going to lead to wisdom down the road. So on, 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 on and off the mats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me personally, when it comes to how I've kind of developed and refined my game over time, I think it's really important to spend some time thinking about what kind of jujitsu player you really want to be. Um, because that's going to dictate a lot of the decisions that you make in your training and in your strategies. So for, for myself, for example, I realized pretty early on that there are really, there's three things for me that I, I want to do when I'm, I'm playing with jujitsu. Number one, um, I want techniques that will work in a realistic street fight situation. I'm not really a competition guy. I got into jujitsu for self-defense. So it's important for me that if I'm utilizing techniques, I'm utilizing them in a scenario where they're realistic for self-defense. Um, number two, which, ba which basically takes like a lot of the spider guard stuff out of the equation for me. Number two, I want techniques that I can do over the long term safely without high risk of injury. So I avoid techniques that um, don't make my body feel good, for lack of a better <laughs> term. If, if there are techniques where it feels really unnatural for my body, or if I know that doing this puts me in a position where my opponent could really hurt me over the long term, um, I don't do those techniques. So some, some examples of that, um, I don't play rubber guard. I, I know, for example, that my knees really don't like that. Um, I know that if my opponent decides to just spaz out of it, I could get hurt. I don't even shoot for a lot of singles or doubles unless I really know I'm going to get it because that's just not my strength and I just don't feel comfortable doing it. I'm more of a, um, more of a sweeper than I am of a takedown guy. You have to know what kind of moves you want to do and what your strategy is when it comes to jujitsu. And for me, longevity is a big part of that. Um, but then the, the other thing is, for me is I want moves that work on people of any size. Uh, because I'm not really a competition guy and I'm more of a self-defense guy, I, I'm not really so concerned about weight classes. I, I am more concerned about moves that scale up and down. So I don't do a lot of stuff that I think is going to cause problems if the other guy's 100 pounds heavier than me, for example. You know, I, yeah, I could probably do like an arm triangle against someone my own size, but I have adaptations and other moves I prefer because I know that they will work against much larger and stronger people. Now, that's just me. 
that there, there's no right or wrong way to make decisions here. It comes down to what you want out of jujitsu. Everyone, I think, should think about what they want out of jujitsu and use that to inform their game. So for me, those are kind of the three things I use to inform every decision I make. I would encourage everyone, regardless if you're a competitor or not, to spend some quality time thinking about this and having clarity over what you want to get out of jujitsu is going to make it a lot easier and more and less painful to develop your game over the long term. Yeah. Cool. So um, second question, and I think this one is more addressed to me. Uh, what in particular did I do to develop myself without the additional benefits of competition? And do I even think there are benefits to competition? Um, this is an impossible to answer question because <laughs> there, there's no one who can see things from both sides of the coin, really, right? Like if you're a competitor, you don't know what it's like to not compete so much. Whereas if you don't compete, you never really know what it's like to compete. So it's hard for me to answer this question because having not been a competitor, I don't really know firsthand what those benefits are. Um, I will say though, and, and this ties back into what we talked about earlier, the most important thing in jujitsu is, <laughs> and, and for that for that matter, life, is to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, one of the mental models that we've documented on our website is uh, growth from discomfort. A common adage in jiu-jitsu is that you should get comfortable being uncomfortable. And what that basically means is that you want to put yourself in positions and situations that are not comfortable to you, because if you're comfortable with something, that means you've done it a lot. It means it's not something new, and it means your opportunities to grow from that situation are going to be much more limited than if you tried something new and novel. And this is the same in life. This yeah. is the same if you're trying to acquire any skill. Right? Yeah, this, if you're satisfied with what you are now, uh, you're going to stay stagnant. Yeah, this mental model is is universal in uh, in life. And I actually found when I got my, my brown belt, I really felt for a long time like I was kind of hitting a plateau. And it wasn't until I made a few changes that I really started to see significant progress again. Uh, number one, I was using a game plan that I was very, very comfortable with. You know, I had my preferred set of moves and things that I would like to do, and I, they worked real well, but jujitsu got real boring because I was kind of doing the same thing over and over again. And I realized after a while, not only was it less fun, but also I was denying myself the ability to learn because I kept going back to what I was comfortable with. Also, you have to really make a an, a, an intent to train with people that intimidate you or to train in situations that intimidate you. Um, you always want to have that experience of training with a bigger, stronger person who's really going to challenge you. You don't want to train with a person that you know you can beat or with the person who is always going to roll so light that you're just having a good old time. You know, I mean, yes, at the end of the day, jujitsu needs to be playful and you should never train with someone that you think is going to hurt you. That's a different situation, right? If you, if there is someone who is unsafe, you should not train with them. But in general, if you have a safe, trusted partner, um, you should not be afraid to train with them just because you know they're going to tap you 20 times, right? You're going to get a lot more out of that than if you just train with the same guy that you train with every single day. So I cannot overemphasize the importance of broadening your horizons, training with new people, training with people that you know are better than you, training in new styles. Um, and by new styles, I, I don't just mean like judo or, or wrestling, but I mean also just trying other jujitsu schools, seeing other perspectives as to how to play the gentle art. That's where I think you can get a lot of benefits, um, even without competition. Really what competition does, and, and again, this is a guy who doesn't compete talking about something he doesn't know about, so take this with a grain of salt, but really what competition does is it forces you to hyper-prioritize jiu-jitsu. Like if you're going to compete, 
you're basically putting it all on the line and that forces you to do all of these things that I've talked about. But you can do those things even if you're not competing, right? You don't need to compete to train with real high quality, right? You don't need that competition. It just motivates people to train better than other people normally would. Yeah. And, and as a competitor on the other side of the coin, I would just say that, um, you know, everything Steve just said is awesome. Like training, uh, training with people who make you uncomfortable, not, not, not in a weird way, but on the mats, I mean, well, also in a weird way, (laughs) if that ever happens, don't train with them. People who challenge you, people, you know, that, that are, are harder to roll with, you know, people that are going to give you difficulty when you're rolling. These are all good things. And, uh, in terms of competition, uh, one thing that I gained from being a pet competitor is, uh, I just noticed that in other areas of my life, when I normally would feel stressed, I just wouldn't be as stressed because I'd know, Hey, well, you know, I've gone and done the pans and stepped out on, on the mats and, and, uh, and fought some of the, you know, some really good guys. So it's when you go and you put, put it on the line like that and you become accustomed to it, uh, challenges just don't seem to, to rattle you as much anymore. So it's, 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 uh, you know, not only do you get, do you gain in your in your preparation mentally and physically for a competition, but at the end you look back and you never regret it. You never say, "Hey, like uh, I wish I didn't compete," even though it was it was really stressful that week leading up or whatever. Or, you know, I've been dying to to just get this over with. First of all, if you think like that, you're probably not going to be a good competitor. But but just the the uh, it, it basically tempers your stress tolerance, and that is a really uh, a great thing to have in life. I feel. Yeah, yeah. Now I I can't really speak on behalf of of competitors, but even as someone who doesn't compete, I see that benefit as well. You know, it's you can have a really stressful day at work, but it's really hard to get that stressed out when you know that after work, a bunch of lunatics are going to try to break your arms, right? It really, it really puts things into perspective as to what you should stress about and what you shouldn't. Yeah. And, and, you know, if your boss is yelling in your face or whatever, and you, and you train regularly, you're just laughing because you're like, dude, I'll choke you out. <laughs> Except for that one time that I, my boss actually was like a legitimate high level grappler. That kind of sucked because then I didn't he- even have that advantage. Uh, um, okay. So the, the last question that came in, what advice could you give someone that lacks regular mat time with training partners that wants to push to reach for the next level and ultimately become a black belt? So we already talked a little bit about this um, in some of the earlier questions. And as mentioned before, we do ultimately want to have a full episode on this topic, but a lot of it comes down to just consistency, you know, having jujitsu take up a permanent mental spot in your mind. If you can't train seven days a week, that's fine, but just make sure that you maximize the quality of the training time that you do have, you know, train with, train with new people who can really challenge you. It's safely challenge you, but people who can really challenge you. Don't be afraid to go out there and lose and look silly. Uh, that's how you grow, right? By going out there and losing. You're going to learn a lot more from losing than you are from winning, even in training. And make sure that jujitsu is a permanent resident in your mind. So even on the days where you can't actually physically train, what I'd like to do is set aside some time to sit down and just think about it, right? Whether it be watching videos or reviewing notes or even just kind of silently reflecting on my training. Every day you want to spend a bit of time thinking about jujitsu. And by doing that, by making it kind of part of your of your regular routine, I find it's a, it's a lot easier to stay on the wagon and it's a lot easier to let your subconscious think about things when you're busy doing something else. Yeah. And, and just like we already spoke about before, like how you mentioned, Steve, if, even if you can only train two times a week or one time a week, like really try and get the most that you can out of that training. 
And don't beat yourself up about it if it's something that, you know, you can only train once a week. Instead, be thankful that you trained once yeah, a week. Yeah. You know, be happy that you're able to train once a week. Um, now I'm going to give you the flip side answer for that because my life was, well, it, was, it wasn't like that. But the career path that I had was heading in that direction where I knew that if I wanted to become a chef or whatever, I would have to sacrifice uh, a big part of jujitsu. And, and that's why I just didn't do that because I didn't want to sacrifice jujitsu. Instead, I chose to make jujitsu my career. So now I'm going to give you the other side of the coin. And that my recommendation would be, uh, if, if, you, if jujitsu is something that you know you want to do and you know that you can't because of prior obligations in your life, make, make the time for training. Um, depending on your situation, a hard reality might be to start eliminating obstacles in your life. That could be a girlfriend who doesn't understand, uh, you know, how much training means to you. Um, and that, that could be a very difficult situation. It could be a job, uh, or a career path. Um, I would definitely never say sacrifice family time for jujitsu because, um, you know, I, I never did that myself. I, I always said, Hey, I want to have a gym, uh, when, when I decided I wanted a gym, I said, I want that because I know that family and jujitsu will be my priority, not, not a, a cooking job for eight, eight plus hours a day. So I'm, I managed my life in a way that I put jujitsu and family first, as opposed to putting my, uh, my current career first. So assessing your life, assessing what's possible. And, uh, you know, it, even if it's a, something that might take five years start putting the wheels in motion. If you know that you want to train jujitsu until you're an old person, make that your priority then. Because the last thing that, and this is what I always said to myself, the last thing I always would have wanted would be to, you know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, look back and say, why the hell didn't I do that? Why, why did, why do I live with this regret where I could have, I was good at jujitsu and instead I decided I was going to do something else. And now I regret it. I thought about that person and I thought that that would be literally me living in hell. So I started changing obstacles in my life. And now I, I live an amazing life because jujitsu is my life. So if you know that that's something you want to do, it might take a little bit of a uh, uh, little bit of caretaking and weeding out of your life. But hey, that's that sometimes is it we're only here for 24 hours a day, right? Yeah, you know, this ties back to kind of what we talked about earlier, which is that everyone should spend a good amount of time sitting down and really figuring out what they want out of jujitsu. Because you, you need to have this conversation with yourself quite seriously. If you really, really, really want to do this as a job, whether it be as a competitor or an instructor, or however you define it, you know, you need to sit down and really think about that and, and make conscious decisions in your life to accommodate that one way or the other. And so, in some cases, that might mean eliminating other things in your life so that you can focus on jujitsu. For some people, that might mean eliminating, eliminating aspects of jujitsu so that you can focus on other areas of your life. And the important thing is that all of these answers are totally fine. It is your life. It's your decision. And no one has the right to judge you for that, right? It all comes down to whether you're doing consciously doing the thing that is best for you. It's totally fine to be the guy on the mat who is just there to have fun and isn't expecting to beat everyone. No one's going to judge you for that, right? I trained with a lot of really, really great hobbyist grapplers. Uh, I am a hobbyist grappler. But on the other hand, there are some people who love jujitsu and want to make a career out of that. And if that's you, then you need to consciously actually start thinking about what that would what that would mean. I mean, if you are one of these people who really does love jujitsu to the point where you you see this being a career for you. 
I suggest that even if it isn't your plan now, you sit down and you actually think about what that would look like in terms of like what the long-term path for you is, how you can pull that off financially. Eventually, presumably, you probably want to start a gym, how you would do that. Even if you wind up never doing it, you should at least sit down and go through the mental exercise so that you can say you did it and so that it's something that you seriously considered. Yeah. And great questions, guys. Thanks so much for asking those questions. And please keep asking them uh, because it really exercises our minds and it really enriches the show. Yeah, we get a lot a lot out of this, too, because it encourages us to think about things that we normally wouldn't think about or think about things in a way that we normally wouldn't think about. And we really do appreciate all of the feedback that you provide. It very much informs the course of future episodes. So please do keep it coming. Thanks again. So this was episode four. We will see you next time. All right. Take care, guys.